Hello and welcome back to another edition of The Alonzo Bet. We're your hosts, I'm Aaron. And I'm Sam. And we are coming to you guys today with another, thankfully, we have been blessed with another episode, jam-packed with baseball information. Sam, why don't you take us through um, some of the amazing things that we're going to be covering today? Oh my God, there's just... There's so much baseball transactions to talk about. There's free agency signings. There's blockbuster trades. There is some more unfortunate news that we we will cover. Uh, And we're going to take you through all this. We're going to try to be brief because to be honest, if if we didn't keep ourselves brief this episode, it could go three hours. There's so much to talk about, uh, about baseball, but then we're going to give you a little NFL Matthew Stafford was just traded and the Super Bowl is this weekend. And we promised you guys Super Bowl bets. We've been on such a betting heater this football mm-hmm. season that we're going to try to share some of our picks with you guys. Hopefully you can get in on the heater with us, but you know, oh, yeah, hopefully this is not the week we lose big. Cause it easily could be. Yeah. I mean, I, I certainly think we're running above expectation. Um, But with that, you know, let's just get into baseball, Aaron, because there's so much to talk about. And the first thing we want to cover before we get into all these transactions is a bit of sad news. It actually happened before our last podcast, but we had so much to talk about that we sort of pushed it on the back burner of this one. But that is that one of the greatest baseball players of all time, the former home run king, Hank Aaron, passed away. Uh, Really sad news, but I mean, he... You know, he's one of the maybe the five best baseball players of all time. Is that is that an exaggeration to say? I I don't believe it's an exaggeration at all. And this is a guy who just, man, his story, of course, Jackie Robinson, so well known um, for integrating baseball and breaking the color barrier. Um, Aaron, Hank Aaron joining the league eight years later, but his story is so... Um, I feel like just quintessential of the way that baseball changed so dramatically around that period and the tremendous value that was brought about by that change, mostly in regards to integration, but also in regards to hitting approach um, and the way that pitchers began to address hitters. So um, Hank Aaron started his career in the Negro Leagues. He actually started before the Negro Leagues barnstorming. He was a slap-hitting middle infielder who, when a scout first saw him, had his hands reversed on the bat. So for those of you who played baseball, Hank Aaron was a righty. His left hand should have been on the bottom of the bat, we all know. He was actually swinging. This is not a myth. He was actually swinging with his left hand on the top of his right hand on the barrel, just slapping the ball around the yard. Of course... Um, originally signed by the Milwaukee Braves, and uh, he went on to have a 22-year career. And in those 22 years, he only had one season with a WRC plus under 100. But what's more impressive is he only had three se- four seasons with a WRC plus under 140. He was so good for so long. And of course, that's how you hit 755 home runs, right? But you just really cannot under understate or underestimate how amazing his run was from 1955 to 1973, where he had 
190, 177, 180, 165. WRC plus is over and over and over again. He hit, you know, 45, 30 home runs every single year. And he drove in a hundred runs every single year with the exception of 68. I mean, his career WRC plus is 153. I mean, most guys are lucky to have that in a single season. In a single season. And it's yeah. not like, oh, you know, this is one of those guys who had like a, a Sandy Koufax type career where his star shines so bright for a short amount of time. A 153 WRC plus over th- almost 14,000 plate appearances in 22 seasons. Hank Aaron is a giant of the game. He was a giant of a human being. Um, nobody who I have ever heard discuss him has anything negative about to say, uh, uh, negative about him to say on or off the field. Um, he changed the way hitters hit. He set the standard for power hitters truly in Major League Baseball. Um, and it's a sad, sad day for the game to see him pass. But of course, Major League Baseball is better for having him in it. Yeah, all-time leaguer in RBIs, all-time leaguer in total bases, of course, was the all-time home run king until Barry Bonds passed him. Absolute legend of the game, easily a top five ball player of all time. You could argue the greatest ball player of all time. Yeah, and that's a that's yeah. a totally legitimate argument. Um, and you know, if you if somehow you aren't so familiar with Hank Aaron, you know, I urge you to not only look up his stats, you know, on baseball reference or fan graphs or whatever you like, because the stats will blow you away, but read about his life, read about what he did before and after the game. Um, because he's truly a guy that, uh, deserves all the honor and recognition he's gotten, um, and will continue to get, uh, posthumously. So our condolences to the Aaron family and to the baseball community at large, um, a sad day, a very sad day. Yeah. Um, but you know, let's celebrate Hank Aaron. And like Aaron said, if you, if you don't know much about him, I urge you to to look up his incredible career stats, read some about him, but with that, let's get into modern day baseball spring training is quickly approaching. And with that, a lot of the free agents are signing. And one of the big guys on on the market for a long time was JT real Muto. And he has ended up back with the Phillies like I think many have expected over this free agency period. I mean, I just, it always seemed like the best fit. It seemed like he wanted to go back. It seemed like the Phillies really couldn't operate without him. He ends up going back to the Phillies for five years, 115. Uh, what are your thoughts on this, Aaron? Yeah, I mean, did he deserve a little bit more? Maybe. But as a catcher, it's it's so, so hard really to to estimate that. Um, because you know, you're talking about average annual value plus the length of the deal. The guys are willing to sacrifice a little AAV for a longer deal. The teams are willing to boost the AAV for a shorter deal. So maybe this deal is, um, is fair at the end of the day. But I think the big takeaway here is mostly just that the Phillies absolutely needed to do this. Right. Like they don't really even after his signing have that much of a chance, I think, in that division, which now looks very, very strong with the Braves and Mets. The Nats are assembling a a team that could conceivably compete. Um, The Phillies also could conceivably compete, but it's an uphill battle for them. And it was basically a lost cause without Real Muto. So they absolutely needed to get this done. 
Real Muto gets to stay in Philly knowing that Bryce Harper will be there for his entire tenure. Um, I think he sees some value in being able to stay in one place. Uh, he never seemed to want to leave Miami in the first place, even though they were so bad. Um, so I think at the end of the day, good job by both sides. Yeah. I mean, I think five years, one fifteen is like, that's good for real Muto. Like I'm, if I'm the Phillies, I'm happy. I got him there. Um, Cause he, I mean, he is. It's the not best. good for real Muto. It is a good price to sign real Muto at. That's right. But I mean, yeah, that's I still, this is still the biggest contract in history for a catcher. So, I mean, like, mm-hmm. I don't think real Muto is can necessarily be like complaining super much. And, you know, he is probably the best catcher in baseball. If you want to argue that it's Grandal, I certainly think that's a fair argument. Uh, but I also think that's more of an argument towards the, how bad that position is right now than it is to how good real Mugo is because don't get me wrong. Real Mugo is a great player. He's a guy who sort of had three straight years of around five wins above replacement was very good last year for the Phillies. He's one of the best framing catchers in the league. And that's a a skill. He's really improved in his game. He has the best pop time in the league. A very good. And he's one of the best offensive catchers in the league. If not the best offensive catcher. You're right about that, but I think one thing to remember is that the catcher position is so weak offensively that I think because Real Mugo is the best offensive catcher in the league, often people can maybe, I think, a bit overrate his offensive game. Like, he is a career, you know, 109 WRC plus hitter. He's never had a season above 130. So, like, he is a good hitter, but he's not an elite hitter, and I think because he's a good hitting catcher at a position where hitting has been so bad, especially in the last few years, I think he can get a lit a bit overrated sometimes. Uh, right. But like, of course this is a win for the Phillies to get real Muto. And, you know, while we're talking about real Muto, let's bring in the fact that the, the Phillies also, I will say, sorry, really quick, Sam. I will say that, um, I I don't know if I actually believe that Real Muto is the best offensive catcher in baseball. I think it might be Osmani Grandal, but he's definitely top three. No no question. Yeah, I I I totally agree with that. Um, and you know the Phillies in a in sort of a similar move also brought back Didi Gregorius, mm-hmm. who again is like you know not a world beater, but is a good player that you certainly are not complaining is your shortstop for the 2021 season. That was a two year, $28 million contract. But, but here's my general takeaway of the moves the Phillies have made, which is like, these are moves the Phillies absolutely had to make if they wanted any chance to complete compete for a playoff spot this season. But at the end of the day, the Phillies were the fourth best team in the NL East before they made these moves. And they're still the fourth best team in the NL East. Like these, the, this was not a team that was two players away from competing for a division title. And I'll, I'll be, you know, maybe they make some noise in the wild card race, but I'd be shocked to still see them in the race for the NL East this year, uh, unless things go seriously wrong for the Mets and Braves. Uh, and I, honestly, I, you know, the Nationals are still, I think, a, a, a big step ahead of them. So, you know, again, moves the Phillies needed to make, and they're not bad prices, but I don't think it makes them contenders. Yeah, I generally agree. My feeling with the Phillies is just that they sometimes are too stuck in their ways, I guess. You know, they have a team and they're like, let's win with this team. Well, that's not always possible, right? So 
we both said that they're moves they needed to make, but I think it'd be more accurate to say that they are the caliber of moves they needed to make, right? Like if they were going to spend 5-1-15, and I'm not sure this guy was out there on the market for that price, but they actually would have been better served to get like an elite starting pitcher, right? And he probably Bauer is going to fetch so much more than that. And there really was nobody else on the market. But then maybe instead of Didi's 228, because you already have a plethora of like utility players that can play the middle infield, maybe they should have gone 228 or on one or two, um, like starters with some upside. You know, they like Odorizzi really, maybe. Right. Odorizzi. And we'll talk about Chris Archer lately. Like, honestly, that if you could have gotten both of those guys, like maybe that's more valuable than Didi Gregorius. So that's just my feeling is that, um, you know, it works for them because that's their brand. So it doesn't work in terms of winning championships recently, but like the Phillies kind of are Philadelphia is a city that like really obsesses over their sports teams and their players. And so like, I understand that there's extra value for the Phillies in keeping some of these guys, but I do feel like too often they say, Oh, this guy was on our team last year and we didn't dislike how he played. So let's make sure we get him back when they could be pivoting and looking somewhere else. So um, in, in a similar vein, uh, one team was actually unable to make a move that I absolutely believed that they needed to make. Um, apparently the betting markets and sports writers don't agree with me, but I thought for the A's to walk away with the division or sorry, to compete strongly with the Astros for the division this year, they did need to re-sign Simeon. Um, but instead, Marcus Simeon went to the Blue Jays on a one-year $18 million deal, which allows Simeon to have a chance to kind of up his value even more than it is right now if he can come closer to where he played in 2019. And for the Blue Jays, oh my God, I feel like every episode we're talking about a new sick player that's on their team. They are cool. Like, whether or not they can win the division, I don't know, but they are a really cool team with a lot of really cool players. Yeah, I mean, they've had, I think, up there with the Mets, those two teams have had the best offseason of any teams. Um, I, You know, the Blue Jays, I think, in betting markets are like plus 450 to win the AL East. Like, that's I really not that. all that bad. I mean, I think they're, they could be better than the Rays right now. Uh, you, like, I mean, I, they I, are. I, on paper, they're way better than yeah. the Rays. The question is, like, we can never judge how – much the Rays are going to be able to raise this year. Yeah. I mean, so like quick, quick thoughts on Simeon 2019. He was maybe the most under the radar, like third in the MVP vote. Like there's ever been like 7.6 war, a 138 WRC plus while playing really good defense at shortstop. I mean, it was the breakout season that people have been waiting for out of him building upon a very good 2018 season where he had a four war was about an average hitter while playing good defense at shortstop. But 2020, he took a big step back, was back down to a 92 WRC plus. And now we're talking about literally only one year where he's ever been an above average hitter in the major leagues. And it was this, you know, absolutely incredible 2019 season uh, and if he'd become a free agent after 2019, like he would have been cashing in. Yeah, he would have gotten uh, paid. But, you know, 60 games in 2020, like, are, do we view that as a step back or just a small sample? Because if the Blue Jays are getting the player, even like 80% of the player that Simeon was in 2019, like, 
this is just an incredible price for one year of Simeon. Yeah, I mean, I agree wholeheartedly. But of course, you ask, I think, a very, very good question, which is, what type of player is he? And we kind of always bring this up. And I feel like I especially always bring this up. Um, you know, like, is, can we believe, basically, um, that this guy has made a huge leap? And to me, I think that I do believe it more with Simeon than other people. So I'll, you know, I'll say with the caveat, of course, that you never really know. But with Simeon, the reason I'm inclined to believe, I don't see anything huge on his uh, stat cast breakdowns, really, that like make me feel like 2019 was so different from the rest of his career, which, of course, is a bit concerning. Um, but a couple big things. One is what you mentioned, Sam, which is just the caliber of the 2019 year. It's not like we're talking about a guy who like kind of had a breakout year and was like, a you know, like an average, a little over average hitter and like picked up his D like his defense went way up and his offense went way up. He kind of put together all of the good things he had shown in previous seasons into one season. And the downside we saw after that was in 2020. So I think the defense improvement is real. That's for real. We saw it in 2020 as well. The question is, is he going to be as good of an offensive player? And I think it hinges around this one idea that he walks more and K's less, which translates to him doing more damage on pitches that he swings at. We actually don't talk about this often, but an ancillary effect to walking more and striking out less is not just that you are providing more value for your team since a K is like absolutely zero value and a walk is the same as a single basically. But it's also that in general, you see the trend with that as players begin to make harder contact. And you certainly see that with Marcus Simeon because when they are swinging, they're swinging at pitches in the zone that they can do damage with. Um, and we saw that in 2019, although it didn't translate to results in 2020, we saw the uptick in EV um, stay there. We saw the walks stay there. The problem is the K's skyrocketed again. But when you look at the underlying metrics, his chase rate continued to decrease. It's decreased every year of his career and continued to in 2020. So at the end of the day, he just didn't see the ball well enough to hit it. Um, I'm willing to chalk something like that up to, to the weird season in 2020, to the added pressure maybe of being so good in 2019 um, and needing to come put the team on his back in a weird season. Um, is it going to work out? I don't know. But one year, $18 million on a team that's already this exciting, I absolutely love it. Because worst case, worst, worst, worst case, Simeon plays good defense for them up the middle and is an average hitter in the eight hole in their lineup. However, you know, something that I've never noticed before is that, well, Simeon is, you know, in, in 2018 and 2019, he was worth 14 and 12 defensive runs saved respectively uh outs above average the stat cast defensive stat has never really liked him so starting in 2017 they had him in the 11th percentile 17th percentile 13th percentile and 6th percentile the last four years so i'm wondering if you know it's possible that the defense was a bit of a mirage based on positioning and in defensive run saved and outs above average because i've never looked at this before you know, 
uh, outs above average really doesn't like him. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's true. Um, that's true. But to be honest, I, I think we've seen enough of him to, to let the outs above average normalize. I'm fine with that. But it's so close to the mean, right? That like, I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I have a hard time reading this, but I think it's a great point um, for you to bring up, Sam, which is that it, it is a bit concerning to see some of the underlying defensive metrics cast doubt on what looks to be the more real aspect of his um, or the more sustainable aspect of his improvement. Yeah, exactly. I don't know. And it's worth mentioning, by the way, that in 2020, he actually was was very bad, right? Like his XWOBA was in the 10th percentile. His barrel rate was in the 27th percentile. Um, like he still was good on whiffs. He was good on walks, but his XBA was in the 7th percentile. Like he was he was bad. So there's risk here. But for the Blue Jays, if they're willing to pay the money, right? If they're not vexed about him ending up in the eight hole in their lineup at $18 million, then good on him. Because what if he's the difference maker, right? What if he's just a five war player? Which is is totally possible. And that's, that's great. Right. Um, But he was a seven war player in uh, (laughs) a seven and a half war player in 2019. I'm I'm certainly going to take the under on that. That's, that's gotta be a cool. Yeah. Me too. Me too. Um, So, so another move that the blue Jays made, is that they traded for Steven Matz. Uh, they traded away three prospects, Sean Reed Foley, Yenzi Diaz, and Josh Winkowski. None of these guys are, you know, world-beating prospects, but they're all guys that are sort of seen as, like, sort of high upside. Major goal. league talent, yeah. Yeah, bullpen arms, mostly. They're they're basically, again, they're not trading out of the, the top part of their, their minor league system, but they're guys that can contribute to a roster. Right. And they did this in return for Steven Matz, uh, who is coming off by far the worst season of his career. He had a minus 0.6 war, a 9.6 ERA, a 7.7 FIP. However, I do want to note, he actually had the highest strikeout rate of his career at 10 and a half Ks per nine. His walk rate was about in line with his career walk rate, 2.9 walks per nine. And his XFIP was a much more palatable 4.15, which is again, not an ACE type guy, but a guy who can be like a four in your rotation. And if that's who they're getting a four in their rotation, you know, it's fine giving up this price. And, you know, Steven Matz was not going to be a starter for the Mets this year. Uh, They already have uh, maybe four to five guys who are ahead of them in their rotation in terms of DeGrom, Stroman, Carrasco, uh, David Peterson, who looked like a nice rookie last year. And they just traded for Joey Lucchese, who I think makes Matt's extremely expendable. Uh, not to even mention that Noah Syndergaard will likely be returning uh, right. in sort of midseason. So I think Matt's was totally expendable for the Mets. But I am a guy who is sort of always being an irrational believer in Matt's. Like, he's always just looked like he had such good stuff from a lefty arm, like a mid nineties fastball, a nice curve, a decent changeup, And it's just like, he just needed to figure out how to pitch, how to put it all together. And he wasn't able to do that with the Mets. And I'm not saying he's going to figure it all out with the blue Jays, 
And, um, and, you know, honestly, I love the Mets side of this deal, like getting anything for Mets, who was honestly a DFA candidate for them. 100%. Uh, but I'll also say, like, I don't hate it for the Blue Jays. Like, I don't think Mats is as bad as a lot as his reputation has gotten to. Like, and I think he's a guy who has the talent that if he just finally gets something to click, could put together a really good season. So I don't mind it as a flyer for the Blue Jays. Yeah, I mean, I to be honest, I don't understand it. I, I, I think there's other guys they could have gotten for the same package that had more value. I, I know you're an irrational believer in him. I'm not denying that his stuff is fine, um, but it's just fine. It's not good. His fastball velocity is 73rd percentile. His spin rate is 39th percentile. His curveball spin rate is 37th percentile. His, his average whiff rate over his career is under 30%. He's, he's not or sorry, uh, uh, less than the 30th percentile. I'm sorry. Um, he, he's never been throughout his entire career. I understand that he's had some seasons where he looked quite serviceable, um, but he's never been good at anything. He has been serviceable at some things. Um, so does he have the upside to potentially end up uh, as a back of the rotation arm? Yes. I, I will note that there was one game against the Nats in 2019 that I remember you texting me, Matt's looks unhittable right now. Yeah, <laughs> but, but then what happened in that game? I think he gave up five runs in the fifth <laughs> inning or something. Like He did look amazing to start the game, but then he got shelled. So I don't know. After the Blue Jays, fine. I, I would have chosen someone else, but maybe they see something. You know, Maybe they see what you see and they can get something out of him. I think in kind of a corresponding move, the Mets signed Jordan Yamamoto, who'd been DFA'd from um, the Marlins system, and or they, got, they, tr they traded for him technically, but didn't really give anything up. I think on aggregate between those two, um, the Mets actually get a lot. And for me, Jordan Yamamoto is a guy who I, you know, can easily see being just as good, if not better than Steven Matz next year. Plus there's some upside from him being a fairly well-regarded prospect just three years ago. Yeah. And if everything goes right for, right for the Mets this year, Jordan Yamamoto, Yamamoto will not throw a single inning for them. Yeah, exactly. Well, well, he'll not throw a single, he'll not start a single. Yeah, yeah, them. exactly. Uh, but like, you know, this is the type of move that good contending teams make, which is that they they plan for the downside. And right. Jorgen Yamamoto as a as a sort of a, a starter for a couple of months is someone that can you can get by with rather than throwing a terrible depth piece out of AAA. So like, yeah, I, I like these sorts of moves out of the Mets. They're the type of moves that a real organization makes and not like a cost-cutting, terrible move. And along with that, they got a really nice piece in, in the bullpen with Aaron Loop at yeah. one year of $3 million, you know? Uh, he's he's a guy that's looked pretty nice for the Rays, uh, uh, has 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 the sidearm, uh, sidearm lefty uh, slot, and the Mets are actually, you know, didn't really have lefties in their bullpen. Uh 2.5 ERA for the Rays last year, uh, fifth and ex-fip around 3.8. But sometimes, you know, you can be a bit more skeptical of you, – you can maybe go a bit more by run prevention when it comes to these guys with really funky wind-ups who can generate maybe weaker contact than you'd expect from like a fielding independent perspective. 
Um, so yeah, for three million, it's a great add to their bullpen. Just a really solid, like not game changing in any way, but the type of move you need to make to win. Just a really solid reliever, a guy who they're going to be able to count on, maybe not in their highest leverage situations, but they don't need him there. They're going to be able to count on him in the sixth inning, sometimes in the seventh inning, um, in close games, in blowouts, to throw a couple innings. It's a good pickup for them. Um, now, a big pickup, a couple of big pickups in the AL Central, actually. Um, the Twins pick up Angelton Simmons for one year, $10.5 million. I know how I feel about this, Sam. He's 31 years old, keep in mind. How do you feel about this? I think it's great. Like, I'm not convinced that Marcus Simeon will be any more valuable than Angelton Simmons next year. I mean, Angelton Simmons is maybe the greatest fielding shortstop of all time, other than Ozzie Smith, maybe. You could definitely Uh, argue it. Yeah. He's been the best fielder in baseball for the last decade. Maybe you want to argue the defense has declined a little bit, but you know, I like he could easily be the best defender in baseball next year. He's the type of guy who, when he's just an average hitter can be worth like five war purely off his defense. And you know, he was an average hitter last year for the angels, 98 WRC plus 2019 was pretty bad. At 79, but 2017, 2018, he was an average hitter and put up five war. Like, I like this move a lot. I mean, he's a guy that, despite not really having much power, still basically never strikes out. He doesn't walk a lot, but he doesn't walk so little that it's worrisome. And what, again, are, you, what are you talking about? He has a 95th percent walk rate in the league. Oh, sorry. A 95th percent K rate. He never K's. Yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. He never K's. He walked. Yeah. 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 Uh, So yeah, I I like this a lot for the twins. Yeah. You, I mean, you just said it, Sam, they don't even need him to hit like he, their lineup can be fearsome. I don't think they're going to re-sign Cruz, which is a little tough, but their lineup can be fearsome anyway. They don't need him to hit. They need him to pay tremendous defense. And I don't know why people would think his defense went down. I get that on Fangraph's defensive runs, he maybe went down, but outs above average has him staying where he has always been, which is in the 16 range, which is insane. That is an insanely high number. Um, even in 2019, uh, the guy will take some walks. He's not going to strike out. He's going to put the ball in play. I, I think it's a great signing for them. Um Although the Twins, you know, they did choose to lose Eddie Rosario, who maybe might have been a more impactful bat. Um, And they end up losing him to an interdivisional rival as the Indians sign Eddie for one year, eight and a half million dollars. Now, they finally got their outfielder. (laughs) You took the words right out of my mouth. I don't like this deal as much, but for the Indians, holy cow, is this so desperately needed he's not he's not an amazing hitter but he is a solid hitter he's a bad defender but they can hide him in left field they needed somebody in the outfield to produce offense and they finally finally have somebody even if it's at just such a cheapskate one eight million dollar deal yeah i mean eddie rosario is a guy who's just like has such nice pop has nice speed like if he could just walk a little, he'd just be he'd be a very good hitter, but he mm-hmm. can't. And no, because, he refuses. Because of that, he's sort of been like a career 
slightly above average hitter. I think, you know, 110 WRC plus is the over under you're taking on him with pretty bad defense in the corner. Um, playing a little DH as well. Uh, so, you know, that's the type of player he is, you know, but he's also the type of guy who can get hot and hit five home runs in seven days, which is not the type of guy the Indians have had in the outfield in a long time. No, no. And, you know, given they still have, uh, the guy that they got from San Diego out there, who's a masher, but at least they have, you know, at least they have something now. So I like this for them. Let's ramp yeah. this up a bit, Sam. Those are all, you know, especially Real Mudo, big signings, whatever. Um, but let's talk about some trades. Let's talk about some deals that went down. The first two we're going to talk about surround the Yankees. And the big one here is Jamison Tyone. So the Yankees acquired Jamison Tyone from uh, the Pirates, who are now officially in 100% total rebuild mode, uh, rebuild mode. We talked about their trade of Joe Musgrove to the Padres on last week's episode. Um, but now they're trading Jamison Tyone, who had a ton more value for four pretty good prospects from the Yankees. Um, what do you think about this deal? Yeah, I mean, I think Tyone's a good get for the Yankees. I think he's going to end up being, I guess, their fourth starter. Uh, and, you know, he had a really nice 2018 with a 3-2 ERA, FIP and XFIP, both around 3-5, worth about four war. Uh, took a, maybe a little bit of a step back in 2019, but again, we're talking about a, a small sample size. He's not a guy... Only, only 37 innings yeah. for him in 2019. He's not a guy that's going to, like, miss a ton of bats. His sort of career K per nine rate is eight but he's a guy who's not going to walk a lot of batters. Who's not going to give up super hard contact. And I think he's just like a nice, a nice piece in that Yankees rotation. Now, like you said, the Padres are in, you know, full rebuild mode. And I don't, I, I don't mind the return. I think it's pretty nice. Yeah. I think it's really nice. So a, a quick word about Tyone. Um, he looked nice in 17. He looked nice in 18. Um, you know, the 37 innings in 2019 are not really, um, you know, catching me too bad. But I do want to say that there's significant risk here for the Yankees. Number one, he's coming off the injury. He didn't, you know, pitch an inning in 2020. He only pitched 37 innings in 2019. Um, two, he's never been really good. You know, he's been like fairly good, but he's never caved eight and a half guys per nine, which in today's game is fairly important. His walk rate has been as high as three. And even in his good seasons, it's two. Um, you know, there's, there's risk here. There's significant risk. So I, I like it for the Yankees. I mean, just another opportunity to, um, get an absolute stud and they, you know, they didn't even dip that deep into their farm system, but they did give up four really good guys. So to tell you why I love this trade so much for the pirates who I think sell at a good time where Tyon still has a lot of value because of his years of team control, they missed his most valuable window, but they didn't know they'd be in total rebuild mode at this point, although maybe they should have. Um, and, you know, I, I think that they get back a really good haul. So, I'll preface this with they did a similar thing here to what they did with Musgrove, which is that they got multiple prospects back instead of the best possible prospect they could have gotten. 
but I think they did it so, so well here. So they got four guys from the Yankees, Cannon Smith, Miguel Yaruje, Ronzi Contreras, and Michael Escoto. Contreras is the eighth prospect in the Yankee system. And when we talk about this, we should keep in mind that the Yankee system is still one of the most stacked in baseball. So their eighth prospect is better than, say, I don't know, the Cardinals, if we would want to talk about the Cardinals later, eighth best prospect. Um, so Runzi Contreras led the South Atlantic League in wins in ERA. He was fourth in innings pitched. They got a guy in Miguel Yaruje, another catcher or another pitcher who had TJ in 2016, um, but projects out for very, very good command with good stuff on a fastball and a cutter. They got a catcher with a 50 future value grade, um, who's the number 21. And they got Mikel Scotto, who's an infielder, who's the Yankee 17, um, who's a 17-year-old kid, and he's the Yankees' 17 prospect. So I love that. Um, out of them, they got huge, huge upside. They got floor with Contreras and Yahure. And um, wow, I mean, if you're going to rebuild, especially without a super, superstar, I think what the Pirates have done here between Bell and Musgrove and Tyone I don't, I haven't seen the numbers, but this has to just boost their farm system up like 10 spots probably. Yeah. And I think you make a really good point, Aaron, which is that they've gone with the strategy of trying to get quantity, maybe over quality. And that's not to say that they've gotten bad prospects in these deals, but they've certainly taken the strategy of getting maybe four or five sort of high upside, but high risk prospects rather than getting maybe one top a hundred prospect mm-hmm. or something. And you know, all the power to them to believe in their player development system, but let's just, let's see if they can show what they can do because historically they have not done well on the player development side. And that's, that's been evidenced by the fact that a lot of their pitchers have sort of gone to other organizations and shine. So, but they, they have installed a new regime, new player development system. So let's see if that pays off. And and if they can get a couple of these prospects to hit that they've gotten in these deals, then they're set up really, really well for the future. Uh, I think that's a good point, Sam. But at the end of the day, I do just want to make the point that you cannot trade without a little bit of confidence in your system, right? Like you can't trade from the position of, we're not going to be able to develop these players. So we need to get major league players now. Um, th- then you're just not going to win. So if you're starting from there, you might as well just save as much money as you possibly can and then sell your team. Um, That's I think a corresponding move to this or not a corresponding move, but something that influenced this move, I think is that Masahiro Tanaka will be playing for the Yakut Swallows in Japan this season. Um apparently, and of course this is all like third hand, I'm reading this on Twitter and in articles or whatever, but apparently Tanaka wanted to come back and play for the Yankees. The Yankees, I think, politely urged him to seek other opportunities, including in Japan. Um, I think Tanaka did eventually want to go back to Japan. So he was able to make some type of like quasi unwritten agreement with the Yankees where they leave the door open for a future return. He tries to go and win a championship in Japan. And then I think he fully intends to at least come back and pitch stateside at some point before he hangs the cleats up. Um, yeah. This I is, mean, I, sorry, go I, ahead. I think we'll see Tanaka in the major leagues again. He's still a good pitcher. I mean, he's, he's going to be a good three or four on, 
basically any staff in the major leagues. And, you know, it's a shame he got injured during his first season in the majors because he was just so dominant when he came came over to the Yankees on that contract, which was, I think, like seven years, 140 or something. Uh, He's maybe the best Japanese pitcher the major leagues has ever seen. Um, He's he's definitely up there. I mean, there's been some other quite good ones, but he's definitely up there. But I mean... If this is the end of Major League Baseball for for Tanaka, which I don't think it is, he's had a, a really nice career and has been really good for the Yankees for the whole contract that he was on. And like, maybe you're a bit disappointed that he didn't turn into like, a, you know, a Cy Young contender. But I, I think it's hard to be disappointed with what you got out of him for for six seven years if you're the Yankees. I mean, you basically excuse me, got 150 plus innings with solid run prevention. He didn't really walk guys at a high clip and he caved guys fine enough. Like he was just a really solid pitcher for the entirety of the deal. I, you have to be really, really happy pulling a guy over from Japan on a long deal like that and getting that return. Um, so a couple other moves made here by the Yankees, or I guess one more move. It's one it really has both me and Sam kind of scratching our heads. Um, the Yankees trade Adam Ottavino and 850 grand and a prospect named Frank German or Herman to the Red Sox for a player to be named later. And this basically just has to be a salary dump. Ottavino is earned nine mil annually over the next two years. Um, the Yankees apparently didn't want to be tied into that contract any longer. No, I think um, this is, I think he's on the final year of his deal. So oh, really? Nine, you think this is... So it's just nine million this year. I mean, okay. Um, yeah, he's a free agent in 2022. So, yeah, I don't know. I guess this is them saving eight eight and a quarter. Um, I yeah, I don't it, get. It's weird. I don't. It's I don't weird. get it. Adovino had a like a six ERA last year, but that was in 18 innings, and the peripherals still looked good. Was still striking out. 12 and a half per nine walked a lot of baggers. Like he always does, but have like right. a three and a half FIP. Like he's a good relief pitcher. Yeah. He's not going to be, he's maybe not the best relief pitcher for the Yankees, but I think he now, and you mentioned this before the, before we started recording, I think he is now the best relief pitcher for the Red Sox. Yeah. I mean, it's just there. The Red Sox bullpen is in shambles and this addition for them is absolutely huge. He probably won't close games for them because there's still this weird thing about throwing in the ninth inning in major league baseball for some reason, but I do think that he will be an important part of their bullpen. Um, So a huge pickup for them, for the Yankees, I guess, look, when you have the type of depth, both in the majors and the minors that the Yankees do, um, you can afford to make some moves like this, I guess. Um, But a a really weird, a really bizarre deal. um, I think uh, between interdivisional rivals who really don't trade all that much for the Red Sox. The only other thing they had going on is that Pedroia has officially retired. Of course, this isn't really a huge deal because he's been effectively retired for maybe like three seasons now. Um, but Dustin Pedroia, what a great career he had in the major leagues. I mean, coming out of uh, Arizona state university, uh, really just had little man syndrome his whole career, but still managed to put up an eight war season in 2011, 
Um, you know, he walked at a good clip. He never really K'd that much. He played good to very good defense at various points of his career. Won an MVP um, in 2000. Won an MVP, exactly. He was a hard-nosed, gritty player um, who was able to find success through it almost looked like sheer will at times. Um, now, of I, course, that's discounting his superhuman uh, hand-eye coordination that none of us could ever possess. But I, I read a almost unbelievable story after Pedroia retired, which is that after seven years of playing with him, David Ortiz did not know that Dustin Pedroia's first name was Dustin and thought it was Peewee. <laughs> There's no way. There's literally the, the, no This way. is the story I read. I almost don't believe it's true, but I'll, I'll send it to you. Because they call him Petey. They don't call him Peewee. I'll send, I'll send it to you later. All right. <laughs> that's, that's insane. Um, oh, my God. Uh, so congrats to Pedroia on a great career. Uh, Sun Devil Faithful will remember him fondly, I'm sure. Red Sox Faithful will remember him fondly. Um, out of the AL East, there's just one more deal to talk about. And this one really tickled my, uh, my fancy, my interest muscles. And that was Chris Archer to the Rays on a one-year, $6.5 million deal. So you may be thinking, wow, how did he get taken for one year, 6.5? And that means you haven't watched baseball over the last like three years because he's been, or two years, I guess, because he's been struggling. But Chris Archer is a solid pitcher. Um, he's pitched a lot of innings for many years in a row before uh, 2018 and 2019 where he's fallen off a little bit, but you know, he's still 32, which is not too bad for a pitcher with his skill set. And I think the Rays find a way to use him where he is worth six and a half million dollars next year. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, of course he started with the Rays and they, they got a lot back for him in the, in the trade to the pirates, including Tyler glass now. Uh, so it's funny to see him and come. Austin Meadows <laughs> and Austin Meadows. That's right. And now they're going to sign him for one, six, five, and, two years later. Yeah. It's pretty crazy to see, to see this, the world come around like that. Now, of course, the thing with Archer is when he's on, he's one of the most, he has maybe one of the most dominant sliders in the game is just looks unhittable, but he's been injured a lot. Uh, he just, uh, got surgery for thoracic outlet syndrome, which is actually, uh, more severe pitching injury, I think, than Tommy John, where Tommy John is maybe you're out for a year, a year and a half, but you're pretty, you're a pretty good bet to get back to your previous form. While thoracic outlet syndrome is, is a problem with your, with your shoulder that can really end careers. I mean, we saw it basically totally end Matt Harvey's career. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, the injury is a big question, but as you said, you know, you always like have to, have faith in the Rays to to do well with pitchers. The talent is there. So let's see what they can get out of him. Yep. Uh, so another pitcher that was signed who's had more recent success than, than Chris Archer is uh, Brad Hand, who uh, was signed by the Nats at one year, 10 and a half. Brad Hand, of course, has been one of the best relief pitchers in baseball over the last three years. Uh this is very interesting because the Indians who we've discussed on previous podcasts, particularly in their trade of Lindor and Carrasco to the Mets are cost cutting at all 
possible phases of their organization declined Brad Hand's option at one year, 10 million, and he actually cleared waivers. So nobody picked him up at that price. So interesting that he ended up signing a one year, $10.5 million contract with the Nets. Uh, what do you think about this signing for the Nets, Aaron? Well, I just, I'm trying to understand why the Nats didn't claim him on waivers and save half a million dollars, right? Like, I, I, I must not understand something or not be privy to something where they would just like willingly, you know, fork over an extra half mil. Um, but I like this enough for the Nats. Like, at least they're trying to address a huge area of concern. Right, like we have agreed that their offense could catch lightning this season. We know that between Scherzer and Strasburg, at least they pack a powerful punch at the at the front of the rotation. But we also know from history that their bullpen is so so bad, and they lose Sean Doolittle to the Reds on a one-year, one and a half million dollar contract. So then they replace him with Brad Hand, and that's a huge upgrade for them. But I do just want to mention that there has to be at least a little concern here based on 2019. Um, but I think this is safe enough where um, this is a really good move for the Nats. You know, they're just still trying to bottle up all these magic seasons. They're trying to get uh, a vintage top form Brad Hand and a breakout Kyle Schwarber and a re-emergent Josh Bell all in the same season. If they do, watch out, everybody, because that team's filthy. Yeah, and, you know, I, I certainly don't hate it for the Nets, but I, I think you make a good point that there is a little bit of worry that they're buying into, like, the first big decline season out of Brad Hand, particularly the trends on its fastball velocity are really worrying. Mm -hmm. We're talking about, you know, four or five years of between 93 and 94 average velocity drops to 92 and a half in 2019 and drops close to 91 last year. So these are of course, worrying trends for an aging pitcher, but of course his results didn't suffer at all last year. He was tremendous. So maybe he's going to figure out how to keep pitching with diminished velocity. But again, this is a deal that I don't hate for the Nats that I think makes them a better team, but that again, there are warning signs that the decline is beginning and you got to hope for the Nats that he can give one more good year before it becomes a real thing. Yeah. And I, I, I will say really quick that I think he's been adjusting to that a bit, um, losing some of his four seamer for a bit of his sinker uh, at times between 2018 and 2020. Um, but yeah, definitely some concern here, but for the Nats, like this is probably their best reliever now, right? I, I, like, again, these are just teams with really bad bullpens. So uh, a guy who could be good is better than a guy who's definitely going to be bad. Like, are, were the Nats going to throw 40 innings of Sonny Solis again this year? Not if they want to win, they're not. Um, so yeah, and, and you can view this like as a replacement for Sean Doolittle, who ended up signing a, a one-year, one-and-a-half-million-dollar contract with the – with the um, Reds, I believe. And yes. Doolittle, on the other hand, is like a guy who's not so far removed from being a very nice, uh, a very good relief pitcher for the Nats. But on the other hand, he's a guy who also has seen very quickly declining velocity going from sort of in the 94 to 95 range to 93 in 2019 
and actually below 91 in 2020, a guy who really we could be seeing as totally washed, but maybe it's worth it for the Reds to spend, you know, one and a half million looking if they can recapture some form. Yeah. I don't think it's, it's necessarily like a bad lottery ticket because he is, that is just like less than three X a league min, but I will make a prediction right now that Sean Doolittle is not in the majors in September. He may not be in the majors in June. He's, he's got a lot, a lot of trouble. He should not have been a major league pitcher last year. Um, The year before he very rarely looked like a major league pitcher. Um, And I, I do not see him sticking around this year. He is, his career is, is hurting. Um, But I I guess we'll see. So what's interesting here uh, is that a, an interdivisional rival, of the Reds, one who actually um, got rid of Jock Peterson and let him go to the Nats on a one-year, $10 million deal. Kyle Schwarber. Kyle Schwarber, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. (laughs) Um, Have now signed Jock Peterson, hence the name origami there, um, at one year, $7 million. So, Sam, we've mentioned the Cubs a couple times. Obviously, they don't know what they're doing, but what do you think about trading essentially Schwarber for Jock plus the $3 million in cash? If I, you're the Cubs. I actually like it a, a lot for the Cubs. I'm not totally convinced that Kyle Schwarber is better than Jock Peterson. Uh, Jock How Peterson, could that be the case? I mean, if you look at his Jock Peterson's career, he has four very good seasons with 2017 and 2020 being the exceptions. Now, 2020, I'm, I'm willing to chalk up to small sample size. And Jock Peterson is a guy who, if you can get him in a platoon where he only faces righties, is a masher. Now, of course, he's, he's virtually unplayable against lefties. The platoon splits are, are disgusting. But I do think Jock Peterson is a guy who suffered a bit his reputation, I think, has suffered a bit from being part of the Dodgers all these years where I think he would have been an everyday player for a lot of teams, but because he's been on the Dodgers, he's been forced into a lot of platoon splits, playing off the bench, and I do wonder if he's sort of given the opportunity to play every day if his talent will finally show out and he can have even more of a breakout season than he has in the past. But to be honest, I mean, four of his you know, six career seasons have been three war or higher. I mean, that's a bargain compared to what Kyle Schwarber's going to be. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I would not, I'd be hard pressed to argue that he has a higher or that he has a lower floor than Schwarber. So I believe that he does have a higher floor than Schwarber, but I don't know, man. Um, My take, I have the exact same take as you, which is that I think a big part of his career has been platooning. But my take is not that he's suddenly going to improve against lefties because the Dodgers actually took great pains to give him opportunities against lefties. My feeling is that when he is exposed regularly to lefties, those stats that are not cumulative, like WRC+, which I think is a big part of what you're basing your offensive opinion of him on, which is totally fair. I think that's going down significantly. 
because he has to now play instead of maybe 25 to 30% of his plate appearances against lefties, he'll probably take 45% of his plate appearances against lefties next year. The Cubs aren't going to platoon him. And I think that's going to hurt at least our perception of his offensive value next season. That's certainly possible. I mean, I think it's going to come down to how the Cubs use him, but I will note that it's not like Schwarber is, is crushing lefties. Like he has similar problems. Uh, Yeah. Fair enough. Um, Okay. Wow. That's a lot of baseball, but here's the thing. We're actually not done Sam, because we have, we've done a bit of bamboozling to our listeners today. And we have saved the biggest move of the offseason so far, besides maybe Francisco Lindor. I'd say that uh, there may be comparable deals in terms of player impact, but Nolan Arenado is now a St. Louis Cardinal. And I think this deal is a bigger deal for baseball because of what the hell it was. So if you don't mind, let me read the deal out and then we'll get your feelings about it. Sounds good. All right. So the St. Louis Cardinals received Nolan Arenado, the franchise cornerstone, the drafted and developed heart of the Colorado Rockies, a 29, nine-month-year-old man who has been a perennial MVP candidate since 2015 and potentially the best third baseman in all of baseball every single year since 2015, with the exception of potentially last year. The Cardinals acquire this young man and $50 million. (laughs) For a young major league pitcher who, if I'm just being frank, has almost always had a fifth of four in his entire career, including the minors, and four prospects who are nothing. The best of the prospects is 11th in the cards organization, nowhere to be found in Baseball America's top 100, and all of them have 40 future value. This is highway robbery. It is criminal malpractice on the part of the Cardinals owners and GMs. And it is, maybe it's not armed robbery, but it's like a crime where the robber has placed his victim in a hypnotic state before willingly taking their goods. Yeah, I mean, I... It's hard to disagree with you. This this move is totally inexplicable out of the Rockies. It's hard to imagine that if they had shopped Nolan Arenado, they couldn't have gotten a better offer and add in the absolute comedy of the fact that they threw in $50 million to this deal. How is this even possible? Now, this is, I mean, I, I've mentioned many times on this podcast that the Rockies are just, one of, if not the most incompetently run organizations in baseball, it's an absolute, they're, they're a laughing stock for 
having the core that they've had over the last five to 10 years, including Arenado, Story, Blackman, LeMayhew, uh, Jonathan Gray, Airman Marquez. I mean, all these incredibly talented players who they've just totally failed to put any sort of talent around to compete at all. Just an absolute laughing stock. So I think all of that's been said. We're going to continue to say that. Trevor Story, get out of there as soon as you possibly can. Um, but let's let's talk about Arenado. Because, as you said, Arenado has consistently been one of the best players in baseball for five years, 2015 to 2019. He is maybe the best fielding third baseman in baseball. He absolutely rakes. Um, but with anyone that's triggered from the Rockies, there's always going to be this clamor of, well, he's a product of Coors Field. And because of that, they'll often look at look at these massive home road splits between Coors Field uh, and, and their road games. But something that people often don't understand about this is that the ball moves differently in Coors Field out of a pitcher's hand. And because of that, it makes it often very difficult for Rockies hitters to hit away from Coors Field. So while, of course, Coors Field is an incredible hitter's park and your numbers are going to be inflated when you hit there, it's actually going to hurt you when you go on the road because you get used to hitting there and the movement out of a pitcher's hands is going to look differently when you go on the road and it's going to make you hit worse on the road. So we've seen that with guys like DJ LeMahieu where there are these huge home road splits at Coors Field, but when they say go to the Yankees, they look a lot better. Uh the one other worry you might have about Arenado is, well, frankly, he stunk last year. Yeah, he, he a, was bad. He had a 76 WRC plus. He still played absolutely incredible defense. Yeah. Uh, he but he played also, amazing defense. He also actually struck out less than he ever has in his career. Didn't walk that much less. The power definitely went down. The batting average on balls in play was really bad. It was 240. And is it a little worrying trading for a guy with this massive contract who just came off like an absolutely dreadful year as a hitter? Yeah. I'm a little worried if I'm the Cardinals, but he's, I still expect him to be one of the best players in baseball. He still brings tremendous, tremendous value with his glove. I'm willing to chalk up last season to a weird, like when, when you have a guy with Arenado's track record, I am very willing to tr- chalk up last season to maybe he had a, you know, a, maybe he, he didn't train enough during the layoff. Maybe it, he dove in the third game and his shoulder was bothering him for the, for the next 30. Like he yeah. only played 48 games. I, I would venture a guess that there are many, many players who had 0.9 war or less, which is what, Arenado ended with last year after 48 games and ended with five war at the end of the season. Like Arenado could have just easily been a five war player in a 162 game season, even with those first 48 games last year. It's just really hard to take, you know, just a bit over a quarter of a season like that and be like, okay, he's in trouble. So 
for me, if I'm the Cardinals who are now getting him at basically 25 mil a year annual average value, and yeah, they're going to have to eat him a little bit later in his career than they would have wanted, but only until he's, you know, 34, 35. That's not that bad for a guy who is such a tremendous defender that you better believe if his arm starts to fail and he starts to hurt at third base later at, when he's 32, 33, 34 years old, he'll go slide over to first base and he'll be a damn good first baseman for a couple yeah, more years. For sure. Like I just, and to your point about core, Sam, you make an unbelievably good point about the way that uh, the pitches move. And actually you see that pitchers come to cores and if you ask them why they struggle, they're not saying, oh, the, I guess some say the outfield's incredibly large. Most are saying, I couldn't throw my curveball because breaking pitches move totally different. And so Rockies pitchers go out into the normal world and they can't throw their curveballs anymore because they've gotten used to throwing it at a mile of elevation. Pitchers come into course, they can't do it. Same thing with hitters. I think Arenado's average dips a bit next season. I, I don't think he's a 300 hitter his first season away from cores like he had been between 2016 and 2019 in those four seasons. But I do think he stays, you know, above 275. I still think he hits 32 plus home runs and drives in a hundred runs and a much better offense than he's been in. Um, I, or a much more balanced, I should say. I think he is going to be totally fine. A great pickup for the Cardinals. The Rockies owner and GM Dick Monfort and uh, Jeff Bridrich should be seriously questioned. And they have been. I don't know if you saw um, Cespedes Family Barbecue tweeting about this today, but they were getting mad weird in their interview about Arenado, like saying like really introspective stuff. At one point, Dick Monfort was like, no, I've never thought about firing Jeff Bridrich. But I've thought about firing myself. Um, <laughs> on the back of that, Bidrich says, blame me for the Cardinals trade. This is like five hours ago. It just happened. And they're already so like, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, they're like, oh, my God, a huge mistake. Blame me. It's just there's something so weird going on. And, like, I don't think that any of them are necessarily bad people. Like, you don't see them just being total villains and being like, you're all morons and don't get how smart we are. But at the same time, like, how can you be so self-aware of what a bad thing you've done just like a day afterwards when it's this consequential to your career and the careers of many people who are technically your employees? I, I, I'm, I'm kind of infuriated by all of this, but let's see. I mean, I think this goes from, oh, my God, the NL Central is a goat rodeo. What's going to happen to just bye-bye Cardinals, right? Like, they're just going to win the division by five games now. We'll see. I mean, I still don't think they're that good. Um, I still think they're worse than four to five other teams in the NL, but that just speaks to the East and West just being way better than the Central. Yeah. Um, so another piece of baseball news that's going to make you mad. I guess that, a final piece of baseball yeah, news final to, make piece mad, huh? to make you mad is that a story ran in the Athletic yesterday that Mickey Calloway the former manager of the Mets, the former pitching coach of the Cleveland Indians, and the current pitching coach of the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim has allegations from five different women of inappropriate advances towards them. Um, yeah, I mean, we just went through this with Jared Porter, and it's just pointing to a really troublesome culture 
in major league baseball where certain men, uh, managers and a general manager think it's okay to creepily make sexual advances to female reporters when there's a weird power dynamic between them. In Mickey Calway's case, it sounds like it is a very repeated pattern of behavior. Mm -hmm. The angels have currently said they're investigating him. They have not fired him yet. They, they, they placed him on administrative leave today. I don't see how it's possible that he doesn't end up fired. No, he's going to be fired. Yeah. And again, so with Jared Porter, you know, we talked about, well, was it possible that these teams would not know about this? With Mickey Callaway, it sounds like, at least the story made it sound like, that this was one of the worst kept secrets in baseball that female reporters all across the country heard about his conduct. It's kind of hard to believe that the teams he worked for had never heard about it. Yeah. So this is an interesting one. And, it's actually worse than the Porter one because apparently like there was physical contact. Like he would like weirdly massage reporters, like when he thought no one was looking and like all sorts of weird stuff where he basically was just like, I'm the coach. Like you want my info, like come have a drink with me, like all the time, just doing stuff. that was a total abuse of power. I'm putting these women in extremely uncomfortable positions when they already might've felt like they were working in a hostile work environment. Also he's married throughout this entire thing. And um, it's, it's just pretty brutal. The, the, the question I have, and this is an honest question, I don't know the answer, um, is was this the worst kept secret in baseball? Because I read this athletic article that I assume you're referencing it. Um, was it the worst kept secret in baseball or was it the worst kept secret amongst female reporters in baseball? So my question is, did a bunch of female reporters know, but felt like they had no place to report it to without facing professional repercussions? Because that's maybe, you know, the biggest systemic issue that the MLB could address if that's the case. Um, or was it something that everybody knew about, but the Mets and the Angels and the Indians all just were like, mm, it doesn't really matter, like until there's something public that can damage our reputation, we're just going to hire him because we think he's a good pitching coach. Because if that's the case, that's something that every t- team needs to tackle from the inside right now and say, look, we're done. Okay. Like if we hear about any of this stuff, it's not worth it to us. It's disrespectful to women and it's not fair to women in general to hire people who are going to continue putting good reporters in uncomfortable positions. We're not going to hire them. So whichever one of those avenues is true, the corresponding actors, I think, need to take immediate action, whether that's the MLB or all 30 clubs in the way they go about hiring in the future. Yeah, totally agree, Aaron. And, you know, with these two stories so close together, it's becoming clearer and clearer that there is a major issue that Major League Baseball needs to deal with. Mm -hmm. uh, And hopefully they make major steps to deal with it. But with that, let's move to another troublesome uh, sports organization, and that's the NFL. <laughs> um, and we promise Great segue, Tru- yeah. truly the segue of the year. You know, we're we're getting good at this. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, before we talk about our Super Bowl bets, um, let's talk about a big trade that was made in the NFL. And we talked last week about how it was reported that the Detroit Lions were going to trade Matthew Stafford, and he has been traded uh, to the Detroit Lions for two firsts, notably not this year's first. So it's the 2022 and 2023 firsts uh, out of the St. Louis Rams. Sorry, the Los Angeles Rams. 
the 2021 third, and they got Jared Goff back. So my thoughts on this, and then you could give yours, are that mm-hmm. this instantly improves the same Jesus, the Los Angeles Rams. <laughs> I think they instantly become one of the best teams in the NFC and possible Super Bowl contenders next year. That is how much I think Matthew Stafford is an upgrade over Jared Goff. I think the two first round picks is a fairly large price to pay. And I think it was influenced by the fact that Jared Goff's contract is so massive that they actually had to pay a price to get off of him. Um, I agree. I agree with you hundred percent, Sam. I think um, Goff is Goff is basically a trash can. Goff is like, a step below a league average quarterback, I think in the NFL right now, he's probably like in the 18 to 20 range for quarterbacks in the NFL. Stafford is, is still probably a top 10 quarterback. Like you can rely on this guy to make the right plays to stay in the game. He's tough as hell. You sent me an amazing video of him the other day of him dislocating his shoulder in the playoffs and like pushing trainers away to get back in the game, throw a pass before just screaming in agony. This is a guy who's going to game. Um, I agree that it makes them instant favorites for the West, potentially, uh, you know, serious contenders for the Super Bowl or to go to the Super Bowl. And yeah, at the end of the day, no one wanted him, especially at that price. So they had to pay. But this raises the question a lot of people on Twitter have been asking, the hell are the Jets going to have to give up for Deshaun Watson? <laughs> they, they could have to give up five first rounders. Yeah, I think I think this question is a bit misguided because it's ignoring some of the dynamics. One, the one that I mentioned, which is that I think the the Rams had to pay a premium to get off of Jerry Goff's contract. Two is that neither of these first round picks are this season because the Rams gave up their 2021 pick for uh, Jalen Ramsey. And three is that these are going to not be the best first round picks with the Rams having a great defense and Stafford and Sean McVay and good uh other offensive pieces, whereas the Jets and or the Dolphins both have, you know, top three picks to give in the Watson trade. And if you look at, you know, typically trade value charts, the second, third pick is going to be worth maybe two to three times as much as a pick in the mid to later parts of the first round. So again, right. I think people are, are maybe reading a bit too much into this into thinking about what it's going to take to get Watson but, you know, of course, this was a big price to pay for Stafford. The price is going to be even bigger for Deshaun Watson. So it's interesting to look at that. But with that, let's get into Super Bowl bets. And yeah, maybe this is what everybody's been waiting yeah, for. Folks, we cannot be held accountable for the money you lose. I just want to be very clear <laughs> about this, that disclaimer. With that being said, we both have tremendous ROIs on this football season. I think it is almost completely due to luck, but I can't be sure about it. We could just be great betters. We could be great. So with that, let's go through a few bets. The first is just the game prediction. We have the chiefs at minus minus one sixty seven, And I believe the bucks are at, let me find it real quick. The bucks are at, I'm sorry, folks. DraftKings is being very annoying. Bucks are at Bucks are at like plus one forty three or something. Plus one forty three. Okay. I have the Chiefs winning this game, and I also think betting the Chiefs is the better bet. I think they're a much better team. Yeah, I mean, I honestly think getting the Chiefs at minus one sixty seven is like pretty nice here because did they 
played, yeah, they played during the regular season. They played on the 29th. Um, and I would imagine that it was probably like minus 260 plus 210 or something. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure. I mean, if you're going to have one worry about the Chiefs is that their offensive line is a bit beat up. Uh, and the Bucks, the Bucks are not bad at getting to the quarterback. But of course, Patrick Mahomes is the best quarterback under pressure of any quarterback in the NFL. And that's why teams simply don't blitz him. So right. he's a guy that can stand up under some offensive line hurting. And, and the Chiefs sort of showed that they can flip the switch. They absolutely demolished the Bills last week, who I think are a better team than the Bucs. So, yeah, agreed. So I, I really, um, I like the chiefs in this game. What's your favorite MVP bet here? I think the best MVP bet, and I hate it. Cause I hate making like futures bets at these odds, but I think Tom Brady at two ten is kind of a slam dunk. Um, just because we're not saying that the game's a toss up, but we're saying it's like three to two, but if the bucks win, I literally don't see a scenario where Tom Brady is not the MVP, right? Like this is the storyline that the NFL has been trying to concoct for years. They finally have it. They finally have Brady on a different team away from Belichick going to the Super Bowl. And if he wins it, he's the one that's going to get credit for it, no matter what everybody else does on the field. So basically I think it's you're by betting Brady at plus two ten, you're betting the Bucks money line at plus two ten. I I totally agree with you, and I think you know I think that's a bet I'm gonna make as a hedge to some of the big bets I make on the Chiefs to win this game. Um, Mahomes is at minus one hundred six, which again, like I think if the Chiefs win, Mahomes will probably be the MVP. But I don't think it's as a slam big slam dunk as Brady, not because there's a difference in sort of necessarily their talent level or like the talent level around them, but more just because of a narrative type thing, as you said. Yeah. And because of that, if we're looking at maybe some long shot MVP, MVP bets to make. Well, and let me, let me say really quick before you talk about long shot MVP bets, I could almost argue that the narrative will work against Mahomes this year. If someone else plays really well, because there was no question that he was not the MVP last season of the last Super Bowl, right? Like Daryl Williams should have won that MVP. Damian Williams. And, Damian Williams, I'm sorry. Mahomes won it, yeah. But Mahomes won it. So I, but people knew that Damian Williams was really the MVP of that game. So I almost feel like um, if somebody comes out to this game and balls out, they may have the narrative in their favor, as weird as that might sound. So with that, I kind of gave it away, but I do think Daryl Williams (laughs) had plus 4,000 is a pretty good that's 40 to one i think that's a pretty good bet um, yeah for MVP. I, I also have that as a bet and as i mentioned like i could see a scenario where the chiefs are just up a lot in this game and they just pound the rock to win it and maybe daryl williams breaks off a couple big runs to 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 cement the game and that could lead to a weird stat line that gives him the MVP. Now, of course, another dynamic here is that Clyde Edwards Elayer has been the Chiefs' number one running back all year, but he has been injured. Is he finally healthy enough to come back and get the majority of the carries? That's a big question mark. The other, this isn't a super long shot, but the other bet I do like is Travis Kelsey at plus 1300. This is partially a narrative thing. I mean, Travis Kelsey 
until the last game of the season as a tight end had more receiving yards than any other player in the league. He's widely recognized as like one of the most dangerous uh, sort of set non quarterbacks in the league. He's highly respected. Kelsey at plus 1300 is a bet I really like. And of course the chiefs are a team that scheme around their great players. And while I could see the Bucks maybe trying to take away Tyree kill with double coverage and stuff like that. I just don't see how you take away Travis Kelsey. The dude's too good. He's too big of a matchup problem for anyone you want to put on him as a tight end. And when the chiefs have that speed around the rest of the field, like I, I almost don't see a possibility of Kelsey going under a hundred yards. Yeah. And I also think an important thing to point out is that to effectively guard Kelsey, the Bucks basically have to sacrifice their biggest weapon, which is the pass rush, right? Like at some point you have to put a big nickel um, or, uh, or an outside linebacker on Kelsey to both keep up with him physically and speed wise. And when you're doing that, you are losing a pass rusher necessarily. You are losing a pass rusher. Um, so it's, it, he is going to be a really tough matchup piece for them. And I also like that pick quite a lot, Sam, um, more than I like, uh, Tyreek, I think, um, for okay. MVP alone. Uh, the other guy I have though, and I, I'll just mention this. I, I think as far as super long shots go, obviously Darrell Williams is a much better value at 40 to one, but Mikkel Hardman at 50 to one is a possibility. He returns kicks for them which I know we're not really seeing kick returns anymore, but it's an added area for him to provide benefit. He had this whole storyline in the last week where he dropped the ball and all his teammates were like, come on, you'll get him next time, bud. And like that, that could play into this. And he is, you know, always a danger to catch a touchdown pass from Patrick Mahomes, who looks in random places every game. And Andy Reid is known for busting out random ass big plays to random players um, in big games. He is very good at that. He has done it consistently. So I don't mind Miko Hardman here for MVP and also taking us into our first CD bets. I don't mind him for first CD at plus 1700 either. Yeah. And let's get into first TD bets. Uh, I'm going to take you through six I like, which is it's going to include one from each team, both at the sort of favorite range, mid odds range and long range. Uh, and folks, Aaron and I are just huge first TD betters. We love it more than anything. And again, we hit on them a lot. I'm not sure if we're running like 99th percentile this season, but our ROI on these things is really high. So maybe listen to us. I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I don't know either, but I will <laughs> say that we make more money than I think DraftKings intends us to on these first CD bets. Yeah. So the two I like in terms of favorites are, I like Travis Kelsey at plus 650 for a lot of the reasons I explained earlier. And also because the chiefs love to scheme up weird plays for him in the red zone. They love to do this little shovel pass to him as he runs past Mahomes up the center. I hate it. The whole line goes one way, he goes the other, and they flip it to him. So I like Kelsey at plus 650, and I like Mike Evans at plus 900, uh, where sometimes when it gets in the red zone, like Mike Evans is the receiver that Tom Brady locks eyes on, tries to get it to him. Mid-tier range. Well, let me give you my my favorite, too. Um, I actually prefer Hill to Kelsey. In for, just in first TD bets, because Hill is always a threat to get out of the gate really fast. And I mean that both literally and 
um, you know, metaphorically, if they're going to double him, it often is not happening in the first quarter. They're often trying to execute their best game plan in the first quarter. And then if he burns them once or twice, they're going to put him on. So I really like Hill actually at, at plus 650, even though that's normally too low for me to bet. And then I also had Mike Evans, who I think at plus 900 is you got to throw a couple checks on him because this guy is like the first TD king. I, I think he actually notched the first TD in like six games this season, which is extraordinarily high. And, and he may, and he, he won me like 150 a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. On, on 14 to one. Yeah. He brings it down. He's physical. He's big. And Tom Brady loves him in the end zone. So I also have them um, for mid tier. I actually have three here, so I hope that's okay. Of course. Um, I have Daryl Williams just because, again, you know, and actually you could take – if we get closer to game day and you see Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, because Daryl Williams is plus 1,300 and Edwards-Hilaire is 1,250. So whichever one of them you see is more likely for getting more touches, you got to throw him in on that, I think. Um, I, I mentioned Nicole Hardman. And then the last one is Mahomes at plus 1800. I mentioned that Andy Reid likes shaking things up. We know Mahomes can run. He is a threat to score a touchdown any game, but especially in this game where I expect to see some unusual looks from Andy Reid. I really like Mahomes at 1800. I love your Mahomes reasoning. And he was also one of my mid-tier guys. It feels like Mahomes is scoring a rushing touchdown in every big game. Like it's something the Chiefs don't really want to go to unless they have to. And then, like, mm-hmm. he's such a threat on the move as a passer that he can sort of freeze the defenders and get in in those red zone situations. So I love Right, he's not like Lamar. When he approaches the line, defenders can't crash in because he's still a threat to throw a 45-yard yeah. dime. Exactly. So Mahomes at, at plus 1,800 is a bet I also love. My other mid-tier option that I like a lot and I find myself betting him a lot is Cameron Bray at plus 2,200. (laughs) Cameron Bray is a guy who Brady just loves to look to in the red zone and a guy that the Bucs call plays for in the red zone a lot. So whenever you can find a guy who is getting a lot of red zone looks, and I actually think he's maybe gotten, you know, anecdotally from watching Bucks games has gotten maybe a bit unlucky in terms of total touchdowns relative to the number of looks he gets in the red zone. He's a guy I often like in terms of value for these first TD bets. And then in terms of my long bets, there's two I like. One is Tyler Johnson at plus 5,500. Tyler Johnson is a guy who... That's the best bet on this list. Yeah, he's a guy... In terms of value. Who... You know, he's down there on the Bucks wide receiver chart. I mean, we're talking about Edwins, Godwin, Gronkowski, Bray. Antonio uh, Brown. Antonio Brown, Scotty Miller. These are all wide receivers that are ahead of him on the chart. But Tyler Johnson is a guy who can make hard contested catches. He's a rookie who, by all reports, Tom Brady absolutely loves him. I wouldn't be mm-hmm. surprised if there's a play run with Tyler Johnson that – Brady's really liking in practice all week and they decide to break out for a touchdown early on in this game at 55 to one. Those are tremendous odds that I like getting in on. And then the final really long shot bet I like is Anthony Sherman at hundred to one. And that's the chiefs <laughs> fullback. And like we said, Andy Reed on a bye is going to come up with some crazy plays in the red zone for a touchdown. And Anthony Sherman is a guy they don't feature a lot, but have featured every now and then for a weird red zone look on a touchdown. And if Andy Reed's going to do it anywhere, I think it could be 
first drive in the Super Bowl just to make a statement. So Anthony Sherman at 100 to 1, put a couple bucks on that. You're going to be thanking your lucky stars if it hits. Yeah, I absolutely love that, Sam. I, I had Tyler Johnson. I agree with you 100%. Whenever he's in the game, it seems like Tom Brady forces the ball to him. Um, Anthony Sherman, we bet a few times, but I think this is the perfect time for him. And let me tell you the play. You already talked about it. It's that play where the whole line goes one way and Travis Kelsey ekes out the other way. But here's the look. Andy Reid doesn't do it in the two tight end set. He does it in the eye formation. He puts a running back there and a fullback. He makes it look like a run play to the left. Sherman leaks out a little bit to the right and they flip it to him. I love that bet. You can, better believe I'm putting a buck on that. Can, can we bet that play at a thousand to one? <laughs> I, I wish we could. Um, the other guy I had, uh, and this is just out of necessity at this point, because I'll never forgive myself. I must bet Scotty Miller at plus 30. You bet him every week. I bet him every week. I probably lost. Uh, let's see. I probably lost about 425 on him so far this season. I'm putting about a quarter on him a week and I'm not stopping this week. I will have a quarter on Scotty Miller, whether he likes it or not. Um, so is, would I suggest you do that? No, but I will be doing it because I must. Um, so Sam, great, great bets there. A um, lot of value, lots of value to be seen all over in what should be a crazy and really good game. To round this out, though, and just to finish us off really quick, even though we have smashed through the allotted time we wanted to use anyway tonight, again, let's do a couple as of always. our favorite, as always, let's do a couple of our favorite prop bets because there's some really, really cute ones out here. Um, I'll start with one of mine. Let's just go back and forth, okay? Over two and a half players to throw a touchdown at plus 1,100. Smash it smash the yes button Jameis Winston getting in oh sorry not Jameis Winston I'm, <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry if you can actually uh, get Jameis Winston to score a touchdown at, at 10 trillion to one I I would not take that bet <laughs> even at 10 uh, trillion to one but somebody getting in or a little like Blaine Gabbard action a little bit of the guy who came in after Mahomes got the concussion just for a little trick play. I don't know, maybe even a wide receiver chucking one on a trip play. Um, I just think uh, 11 to one is good enough uh, for me to probably throw two quarters on it. Yeah. I don't, I don't mind that one. The first one I have is I think just nice odds. Kelsey plus one ninety to score a TD and the chiefs to win. I've j- I just keep talking about how much I like Kelsey in this game, how the Chiefs are going to rely on him because I think he is their best player outside of Mahomes, obviously. And I argue th- think they're big favorites to win. I think Kelsey's very likely to score a touchdown. I think that's a nice bet. Yeah, those bets kind of bug me because of the way they do the parlay odds, but um, I do like that one. I actually chose a different one to improve the odds of the Chiefs winning. I like Chiefs to lead after every quarter at plus 250. Honestly, like, I just think that there are many permutations of this game where the Chiefs come out. And sure, maybe it's not dominating the entire time. Maybe it's not the most comfortable bet you've ever made. But I think there's a lot of scenarios where they come out, they score twice in the first quarter, once in the third quarter, twice in the fourth, you know, maybe or in the third, maybe don't even score at all in the fourth, but still find a way to lead throughout the entire game. Um, so I, I like that at 250 in a similar vein, right? What you're trying to do is you're trying to basically tease the Chiefs money line. 
Um, and exactly. so there, there's two different ways to do it, I think, that are both pretty good value. So another one I like is most rushing yards in the game by Clyde Edwards Elair at plus 400. Uh, the reason I that's like a, that's a good one. Yeah, the reason I like this is he's actually fourth in terms of odds. Fournette's plus 175, Ronald Jones is plus 275, and Daryl William, Williams is plus 325. But I'll reiterate, like, Clyde is the best running back on the Chiefs. He's been hurt recently, but if they he's feel probably he, the best running back out of everybody you just named. Yeah, this, yeah, exactly. And if they feel he's healthy enough to really be the feature back in this game, he could get way more carries than Daryl Williams. Cause I think at the end of the day, he's better. And also combine that with the fact that I think it's very possible that the chiefs are up a lot of points and they're running the ball a lot to run out the clock and the, the bucks basically have to scrap the run game to come from behind. And you see four and Ronald Jones, just not really getting a lot of yards. I think that's a really nice bet. Yeah. I, I really like that. Um, I only had one left, Sam, and, and I think this shows the different types of betters that we are. My last one was an offensive lineman to score a touchdown. I had yes at, at uh, plus 2,000. I think 20 I to like 1 that. that we get an offensive lineman sneaking into the end zone this game. Um, I, I, I do like that one. Um, and, and that's all we got. Do you, have any, do you have another one? I have one more. Okay. And okay. that is Devin White to record an interception at 18 to 1. And oh, here's, bad. here's my reasoning for it. Uh, Mahomes is a hard guy to intercept when he's throwing the deep ball because he can overthrow everyone. I think if you want to get an interception on Mahomes, you got to confuse him on an underneath pass. I think Todd Bowles is a guy who likes to disguise coverages a lot uh, when he throws a blitz coming. And I could see a play where Devin white looks like he's going to blitz then drops off into coverage. Mahomes doesn't see him and he just throws it right into him. So that's, that's what I like at 18 to one. I, I really like that. I mean, I, I, I will say that I think that format of bet is just so bad. Yeah. <laughs> like it's just not great value, but I do like Devin white to record interception 18 to one. I think you play this game 18 times. He probably picks one, right? Um, We'll see. But uh, yeah, that's going to do it for us, guys. I, I really hope we enjoyed this. I will say really quick, I'm sorry to our couple listeners who emailed us in today. As you can see, we didn't quite have time to get to those. Um, but some really interesting questions sitting in our inbox that we will definitely be getting to in a future, less busy episode. Um, but for that, make sure you're using our bets. Uh, make sure you're Following us on Twitter at the Alonzo Bet, emailing us thealonzobet at gmail.com, liking, subscribing, all those good things that help us reach a larger audience of uh, degenerate baseball fans and gamblers who just love talking it out. Yeah. And as a teaser, you could see some alternate Alonzo Bet content from the podcast coming up in the future. It's not a sure thing, but it could be coming up. Just we're in talks. Know. Let's just say we're in we're in contract negotiations. We might have we might have a new way for you guys to uh, get acquainted with our uh, little act here. So um, stay tuned. We'll be coming to you soon. Uh, but for that, thank you very much for joining us once again today on the Alonzo Bet and for the Alonzo Bet. <laughs>